We made it through the primaries, through the conventions, and through three emotionally grueling presidential debates. Not to mention the 18 months of campaigning that led up to them. But in just two weeks, it will all be over. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Meg Kramer. Right now, forecasts at The New York Times, 538, and The Huffington Post all give Hillary Clinton over an 80% chance of winning the election. This episode, you're going to be hearing from someone who spends a lot of time thinking about that possibility, Neera Tandon. Tandon is a longtime Clinton advisor, and she's the co-chair of the Clinton-Kane Transition Project. That's the team that is already trying to figure out what a hypothetical Clinton administration might look like. Last week, BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief, Ben Smith, interviewed Tandon at a BuzzFeed Live event in D.C. You'll be hearing some of that interview in a little bit. But here with me now is Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. Hey, Meg. Why talk to Neera Tandon right now? What do you think is interesting about the role that a transition team has and her team has in the election? I think there are a lot of decisions that will get made over the, if Clinton wins. There are a lot of decisions that are being made now and that are going to be made over the next couple of months that will really shape 2017. And 2017 will be a very important year. Often the most important year of a president's administration is the first year. It's when it's when you know President Obama decides that health care, for instance, will be the signal fight. And, and so what I wanted to ask Nira about really was that. Like, where's this? If Hillary gets elected, where is this all headed? What exactly does a transition team do? Mostly they hire people. I mean, the, the, like that, the, the key questions of November, December, and early January are who is going to get these big jobs. And not just who, but sort of what, what those people represent. You know, will she appoint, appoint a... The head, the chairman of Goldman Sachs, to be the Treasury Secretary, like no, clearly not at this point. Um, but will she appoint Bernie Sanders? Also, probably not. That's actually pro- the, the the appointments that will have the most symbolic power, and that I think at people are most intensely focused on are the financial regulatory jobs. And Donald Trump is also doing this. There's a Trump transition team headed up by Chris Christie, like a few blocks away, right? Yeah, the, the Trump campaign is much, much less organized in every way than the Clinton campaign. And, and one aspect of it is the transition team. I think that you know, one thing about the Clintons, they are really putting a lot of work into developing policy papers and lists of people who might be appointed. I think I saw, uh, we reported last week that the Trump campaign had a conservative group sending out cold emails to people asking if they would like to serve in a Trump administration. What? <laughs> so it's, it's a different level of organization. I think that at this point, if Trump wins, nobody is going to be more surprised than the people around Donald Trump. So Tandon is also president of the Center for American Progress, or CAP, which is a progressive think tank that was founded by Clinton's advisor, John Podesta. How has that group shaped this election, do you think? I think they've shaped the election less than they'll shape the next administration. You know, if you go to their website, you'll see policy white papers on everything from the from climate to the Middle East that I think are probably pretty good blueprints for what, what Hillary Clinton intends to do. And Neera Tandon was one of the people whose emails were exposed when John Podesta's emails were hacked and leaked to WikiLeaks or posted to WikiLeaks. You know, it's funny. Reading th- there, it's these, these leaked emails at the Clinton campaign not wrongly complains that there's something a little, um, that it feels inappropriate for reporters to be pouring through people's kind of private gossipy emails. Who who among us hasn't said, I hate so-and-so in an email that maybe they didn't actually exactly mean or did in that moment. Um, but, you know, we didn't, you don't get into the business of journalism because you want to keep your hands super clean. And um, and and so lots of reporters, including ours, have, have read and reported on these. And, and I would say broadly in the emails, she comes across 
the Clinton team broadly comes across as a very disciplined, cautious group, and Tandon almost uniquely in there comes across as a very plain-spoken, acerbic, funny, uh, different voice from everybody else in there. And uh, I think you will hear some of that in this interview. Let's hear your conversation with her right now. Thank you all so much for uh, for showing up the night after a, a debate. Um, <laughs> we're going to be less civil. Uh, That's because Ben is a puppet. A Actually, it was it was a little hard. It was this event was a bit hard to schedule because Nira refuses to use email. Um, but 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 um, but I'm so glad that that you that you're here and. Um, <laughs> And okay, who is the random guy clapping like right over there? Is that someone who works for you? Um, um, but yes, and and yeah, and I think the reason that I'm so excited to have you here is that if if Hillary Clinton is elected president, I think you probably have as much insight as anybody into what a Clinton presidency is going to be like, what the priorities are going to mm-hmm. be, and I would like to spend most of this time talking about that. But I did want to start though seriously asking about about these leaked emails in which you surf it. You're 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 in there quite a bit, and often essentially in kind of a real keeping capacity. You seem to be the one person in in that world who is talking about Clinton's inability to apologize about her sometimes bad political instincts. And I wonder, you know, that's it's all. Everything so is out of context. So kind of you to bring all of that. But, up. That's um, really kind. Thank but, you. But I guess I wondered, you know, should people reading those emails kind of worry about her character, worry about what you think about her? Uh, Well, the first thing I would say is that, uh, as I'm sure you've all heard, uh, I am not going to authenticate any of these emails. Um, And, uh, you know, just to step back, this has been a really weird experience. And is the one time I actually do completely agree with Marco Rubio uh, that it has, uh, it is a, it is a weird situation in which we have a foreign government trying to weaponize people's personal information. You know, I think if you read uh, actually all of the emails that are out there, not that I'm authenticating them, but if you read them, you get a sense of the people who work for Hillary and their deep respect and her ability to hear honest advice from people. Um, not that I'm authenticating any of them, I'm just <laughs> stating that. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, I will say that, you know, it's been a tough experience. My kids' names are in these emails, and, um, you know, people are on social media are, like, trying to contact my daughter, who's 14, because of these emails, and um, and so, you know, it's, it's like, I'd like to make a joke about it, but it is, it's honestly been, like, a pretty horrible experience, so I'll just say that. I do wonder, coming out of this, how you see yourself, though, in, in, in not, not in the email specifically, but, like, in, in Clinton land. You've, you've been there a long time. You know her very well. Do you think of yourself as having a role of speaking truth to power to her, <laughs> of, of being a person who can sort of say things bluntly that others can't? No. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I, I really see myself as a person, as an informal advisor outside the campaign who, you know, in particular moments was, was sending in advice and thoughts. That's, that's, all, that's all. And plenty of other people do that as well. And Not that I invite anyone to read the emails, and let me just tell you, 
If you go on WikiLeaks, they see everything you're reading, so just keep that in mind. Ben. Um, <laughs> and, and just finally on that topic, I'm sure you saw Larry, Larry Lassick yesterday wrote that it's, who wrote... We're, we're now on the seventh question. Who wrote that it's, it's not right that Nero should bear the burden of this sort of breach. And I just wondered what you thought of his... his he had an incredibly gracious uh, response. I wrote a terrible thing in a, in a particular moment. Um, and he had, I apologized profusely to him and he had a very gracious response and he's a person who's an expert on privacy. Uh, and so I think he was in many ways able to cut through this, which is a lot of people's very private information is being put on the internet. He, as he said there, you know, he was a supporter of Snowden's information going up on the internet, but that was really about a government and this is a case in which people's you know personal data family information is going up on the internet without any curating at all and uh, and there isn't a public value to that to uh, to switch topics to um, thank to the, God um, so the Center for American Progress I, eight years ago at least I think was seen as a bit of a government in waiting for the Obama administration mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and was very involved in the Obama transition similarly seen that way and I'm sure folks at this cap are very involved in Clinton transition planning. I wonder what you what you guys learned from the Obama transition, and and what that's been carried into this one. Uh, well, I should say I'm a co-chair of the Clinton Kane transition, um, and uh, John Podesta, uh, who's president and founder of Cap, was the chair of President Obama's transition. So I have a different role. I'm a co-chair, not the chair. John uh, Ken Salazar is the chair. Uh, I'm most proud of CAP's role over several years being able to develop ideas on paid leave, on access to college, on uh, ideas about how to address inequality, profit sharing, raising the minimum wage, ideas that a lot of the presidential candidates took up. Uh, Senator Sanders adopted some of our ideas that you know, Secretary Clinton didn't. Hillary took a lot of our ideas. Uh, so I'm most proud of that role, and obviously if we have if Secretary Clinton, if Hillary wins, then, you know, I hope those many of the ideas that kept developed over many years become law. In terms of the, in terms of the transition, you know, it is a, uh, it is a very different kind of transition. We're not, you know, rooting through the Justice Department to find the people who are going to undermine, um, you know, civil rights laws, etc. Like there was, you know, some anxieties about that eight years ago. So, I think the lessons are very different. In many ways, we're really trying to keep momentum going on a, on a whole range of topics. So come, come January after inauguration, mm -hmm. is, is there, I mean, I think, you know, in, in 2008, President Obama came in and made a decision that healthcare was going to be this huge signature battle. Do, what's, what's, what's her healthcare going to be? <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, she's talked about her greatest priority is raising incomes. And so she's already detailed how a jobs package will be a top priority for her. Obviously, she's already, she talked about yesterday, that comprehensive immigration reform is something she's going to introduce in her first 100 days. Um, obviously, I, I should just say, you know, everyone in the transition is really focused on her being utterly focused on the November election and not thinking through these issues as much as thinking through how she wins and how many Senate seats and how many Democratic House members uh, get elected. Uh, but I think, you know, one thing I would say is, and I was Hillary's policy director in 2008, um, you know, she takes some hits for this, but, you know, she really does think through, it sounds 
Pollyannish and ridiculous, but she actually does think through what she would do as president when she develops a policy agenda, even in the primary. And I do think that we've had a, you know, an, an odd election cycle. And, <laughs> um, in, and in what way, Nara? And uh, <laughs> um, loser. And um, and sorry. I just couldn't help myself. I, that wasn't directed at you, just to be clear. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, I do, but I do think, like, if you really step back, um, what we're seeing in this election cycle is that uh, a, I think it's a minority of the population, but a lot of people are losing in, losing faith in a whole range of institutions, and. Uh, they feel really let down by Washington, and and not just Washington. They feel let down by media. They feel let down by business. They feel let down by a lot of institutions. Um, and you know, we could have a you know multi-hour debate of how much economics plays in that. Is it entirely economics? If there are racial and cultural issues, but at the end of the day, it's hard to have a functioning or a well-functioning democracy where 30% or 35% of the population feels that the rest of the country is separate and apart from it. And so I, I think that um, addressing those issues, that lack of trust, but also, you know, ensuring that people feel like they have a stake in the economic progress of the country is going to be critical for whoever's president. And even, you know, you just really can't live in a world where so many people feel like they don't have a stake and, and, and not have elections that are like this. I mean, my worry is that unless we solve these myriad problems together, uh, you know, Donald Trump will be the beginning and not the end. And that's why my great hope is that you'll see perhaps more bipartisan interest in solving some of these problems because, you know, a grassroots of the Republican Party that hates its leadership is not so fabulous for them either. One, one of the issues that I think has spread on the state level I think to a degree that surprised a lot of us was, is the $15 minimum wage, mm -hmm. um, which I, I think probably because it's so concrete. Do you think she, she is she going to consider some kind of national minimum wage? Absolutely. Absolutely. She wants to increase the minimum wage. Um, and she's talked about do you think how do you think 15, 15 is too high. Uh, so uh, this is what we worked on in the platform. $15 should be our goal across the country. Whether we can get there, yes, let's do it, let's talk, I've not heard it. Um, you know, uh, one way New York accomplished this was to put $15 up kind of immediately or, or, or quickly in the cities and take some time in the rest of the, in the rest of the state and the more rural parts of the state, but a goal of getting to 15 and, and actually accomplishing 15 over time. I think that's, that's a model Hillary's talked about as a great model for the country. You know, people lose sight of the fact that today's minimum wage is $7.25. No one can live on that. She's talked about how that's a travesty. The tipped wage differential is a travesty. So many people, disproportionately women, but 
Lots of people are basically still subject to as low as 213 an hour. These are things she's been talking about from the beginning of this campaign. So those issues are definitely going to be at the forefront of what she's talking about. And I mean, and she sees this as part and parcel of a, a jobs and wage agenda. And I guess I just, I really have just one, one final question is I think we're pretty close to out of time here. But I wonder when you hear, I mean, just what we're watching. Can we watching, discuss root canals? I'm just wondering. Is there some topic here? Yeah, yes, actually. When you, when you hear... Repo- <laughs> When you hear um, the Republicans, like, like Jeff Duncan did recently, kind of praise and cheerlead WikiLeaks and these leaks, like, yeah. what, do you, what do you think? I, I would say to them, bear, but for the grace of God, go you. You know, I mean, this, to be honest, like, what's interesting about this whole experience is uh, that, I mean, who hasn't put an embarrassing email and said something embarrassing in a private email? And... Uh, you know, what I was heartened by is, uh, again, not like I agree with him on most issues, but the fact that Marco Rubio, who is on the Foreign Relations Committee, saying that, you know, it's today, it's Democrats, tomorrow it will be Republicans, the next day it's going to be American media. The idea of the WikiLeaks is to, it is a psyops operation. It is to create instability. It's to make people unhappy. It's for... It's to uh, create doubt. I mean, I have to say, like, going through the DNC hack, the anger that created when, and it was like, there was no one at the DNC should have been sending those emails about being against Bernie Sanders. That is totally wrong. But the way people jumped from someone sent a, a, a stupid and abhorrent email to, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders actually won California is, uh, which, you know, just, I guess I need to say, is not true, Um, is, uh, you know, I think there's a feeding of conspiracies and distrust. As I said, the big challenge we have as a country is that, um, and it's not just Republicans, but many people are losing faith in institutions. Uh, Donald Trump is living day to day on an assumption that people assume the government is out to get them. And I think that's what, you know, I think essentially Russia is trying to live off of that. And so I, you know, I find it deeply troubling. Obviously, I'm a little biased because this is like not such a great experience for me. But I think the idea that Republicans think that they're that like we're in the last gasp of an election, they're going to use WikiLeaks against them. You know, that is a snake that will bite you in the future. And thank God Marco Rubio said it, but I think Republicans recognize that this is going to happen to them eventually, too. And what would you say, speaking of Trump sort of feeding off of that, the, um, you know, his now kind of, now it's this sort of playful refusal to acknowledge the results of the Playful Democratic election. Playful wouldn't be, is, is really not the um, word I was, would that use. That was sort of today's attitude, Jordan. <laughs> yes, sir. Last night, just incomprehensible. Um, the, what would you, like, do you, what would you say to him about that? I think if you looked at some of these emails that somebody sent who said, whose name is Nira Tandon, you could look at the colorful language I use. Um, you know, I, it's not what I would say to him because I have said for like six months that this guy's going to create a media, his whole job is, his whole view now is to create a competitor to Fox. And I look forward to Kellyanne Conway's 9 p.m. hour and Sean Hannity's 8 p.m. hour. I mean, when I say look forward, I'm just kidding. But, um, 
But, you know, what I'd say to Republican leaders is that one of the reasons why Donald Trump became the Republican nominee is that 60%, and if you looked at primary to primary and uh, in, the, in the exit polls, somewhere between 55 and 65% of Republicans felt that their leaders had betrayed them. And I think they feel like Washington is out of touch because they get this information that there's whole groups of people conspiring to keep them down. And you can say as a Republican leader that your job is to um, meet your voters where they are, or you can say that your job is to tell them the honest truth about things. And I think a continual cycle in which you kind of give in to or wink at a can't, uh, uh, folks saying that the president wasn't born here or wink at that Hillary is actually a criminal and the FBI is like protecting her, which from my perspective seems insane. But, um, or the New York Times, which, you know, I think has been pretty tough on Hillary, is actually a giant conspiracy to protect her. You, they wink and they wink and they wink and they wink and then they get Donald Trump. And the truth is, that a party that is uh, that is the Donald Trump party is not going to be a party that actually lets an incumbent office holder like Paul Ryan be their leader. So they have like a judgment to make after this election, and I I you know I look forward to seeing how that resolves itself. Well, thank you, Nara. I just want to talk about this this last thing that she brought up, which is that the Republican Party was supposed to reinvent itself after Mitt Romney lost in 2012. Is Donald Trump somehow perversely like the result of that reinvention? Donald Trump is definitely a reinvention of the Republican Party. I mean, I think he he's a nationalist ethnic candidate who doesn't believe particularly in small government, in strong defense and the principles that really defined the Republican Party for 50 years. He's something different. Um, I mean, I think the challenge is that he's the, he's, the, he's the candidate of a shrinking share of the electorate that was smaller this, this year than it was four years ago, will be smaller again in four years. And it's, it's very hard to see how you build a national party out of that. It's, he's a candidate of, some, of a group that had always been part of the Republican coalition. Do you think that Republican leaders are going to be able to move beyond this moment where there's a super passionate group of people who are not going to ever be the core of like a a majority party? You know, I don't know. I think there are signs that point both ways. I mean, on on one hand, there's clearly this new passion and there's this new media space around Breitbart, around Alex Jones that's driving it. I mean, there's a whole, there's sort of the infrastructure for a political movement around Trump. On the other hand, he is the, the ultimate one man show. He you know, he he barely he, he doesn't really have much of a campaign organization, and and you know, I mean, it's also he's a kind of celebrity demagogue who comes along once in a while, but it's not totally clear what he leaves behind. If Clinton wins the election, do we know if this contentious, polarizing campaign season is going to roll right into years of contentious, polarizing national politics? 
So like the status quo. I mean, I think you know it will roll into it will roll into a Washington that is incredibly divided by party. Hillary Clinton is a president will be would be will be if she's elected a president who I think is you know has what she would consider kind of realism about the the political divides that you know Barack Obama I think always or certainly came in hoping that he could be a transformative figure around the partisanship in Washington and that didn't happen. I don't think Clinton has any illusions about that. Um, but I do think her advisors, you know, are kind of hoping there are some places where they can make pragmatic deals with the Republican leadership. You know, whether Republicans hang on to the House and the Senate is a big part of this, too. Ben Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Meg. No One Knows Anything is produced by me, Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Kate Nocera and Eleanor Kagan and production support from Julia Furlan. Our music is composed by Beauty Pill. Subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes to follow our coverage through the election. On Twitter, we're at No One Knows, or you can email us at no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with more things we don't know.